Hello, everyone. This is uh, Scott McNamara bringing you another new and an exciting episode of What's New in Adapted Physical Education. And today I have a guest on who I've wanted on for quite some time. I think he's been mentioned a few times on the podcast. And uh, we have Dr. Luis Columna. And he's on the show, and I finally have him. He's from uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's on here, and he's going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk about kind of two different things about him. Kind of his, uh, he has areas of focus on uh, parents of children with disabilities. We want to hear about, about that. We also want to hear a little bit about his research with working with Hispanic students uh, with and without disabilities in a PE setting. Um, in, in addition with the parents piece, he also has a program called Fit Family, uh, which is, is growing and, and, and new, and he's going to discuss more about that uh, in a little bit. Um, but right away, uh, I, I want to just, you know, I want everyone to, to get to know you a little bit better, Luis. Can you tell us in like, uh, you know, two to three minutes, like a little bit about yourself? Uh, what's your research interest? How did you get interested in the field of APE? Very good. Well, th Scott, thank you very much for, for the invitation. I really appreciate that. And so I, I'm so excited to be here. I think this, what, this project that you are doing is so valuable because it gives us another chance to learn more about what is happening in the field. Well, I, um, as you mentioned, I'm currently, I'm a, an associate professor at UW-Madison. Um, I work in the kinesiology department. Uh, we, um, I'm one of the lead faculty in the health promotion, health equity program that we just developed. Prior to here, I was an associate professor at Syracuse University. And then prior to that, I was at SUNY Cortland in New York. Um, so where we, are, where we are right now is because of my experiences that I learned at Cortland and Syracuse, and now I get to put it together all in here. Um, so my research focus, I have a couple of areas, but mainly focus on physical activity promotion for families of kids with disabilities. And with a component on diversity, like I want to learn about diversity issues and how we can better prepare future professionals, how to work with diverse group of students so, and their families as well. So I'm pretty sure that as we talk, you're going to be learning more about, the, about our research right now it's that's what we do physical activity promotion that's awesome and and just um one other thing too that luis and i have in common is we're both uh texas women's universities uh phd grads yeah so we have uh, that nice commonality well one more question about about you luis I, you know um I, how did you get in, interested in the field of adapted physical education <laughs> by mistake scott to be honest with you um in puerto rico that's where i'm from right so i I was working in a school um, as a PE teacher and I saw this girl walking on her tiptoes and, and I didn't know what, I knew that it was something that was not okay with her, but I didn't know what it was. And when I asked, talked to the teacher, she said that she was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. And even though that in my undergraduate in Puerto Rico, I learned about muscular dystrophy, I didn't know how to work with her. I didn't know what to do. So. Jumping a couple of years here and there, I ended up being in Texas and went to Texas Women's and, and decided to do my PhD in adaptive PE. So, so I think that that's how this happened. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, now, I got a question real quick, because this is a topic I've, I, like it's something I always bring up, but like in your undergrad experience in Puerto Rico, uh, did, you, did you have uh, classes specific to AP? 
Yeah, actually, my, I, I studied under the, the only, at the time, the only adaptive physical education program. My advisor over there, uh, Dr. Maria Canabal, she was a TWU graduate as well. Ah, yeah. so we so. learn a, we learn a lot about activity modification. How to deliver? But, but remember, when you are an undergraduate student, you take the courses just to, for the sake of taking them. Sometimes <laughs> you know, and, and you don't pay attention as you're supposed to. And 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 I was focused on teaching, you know. And and, and yes, I know about autism Down syndrome, the most common, more popular disabilities. So when you have somebody with a low incident disabilities, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult. Is, uh, and that's a good point that a lot of them are taking them to take them, you know, especially if they have 18 credits they're taking and working. And, and looking yeah. back, I, I wish I would have paid more attention to many of my classes, right? <laughs> I, you know, yes, I think about the same thing from like middle school on now. I'm like, man, yeah. I should have known that. All right. So I want to I want to focus a little bit first on uh, your work with um, Hispanic students and just diversity in general, um, you know, in PE and and. You know, Luis, over the summer, you and I, uh, we, we, we got to go to ISAPA and I got to spend some time with you. And what I appreciated talking to you a little bit is that, you know, I feel sometimes like diversity is a, a buzz term that we use a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the way you talked about it to me was very, very insightful, um, as well as you had, in my eyes, very concrete strategies on how to immerse students um, and, and, and show them a different lens on 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 students of different cultures and backgrounds. So can you talk a little bit about like, you know, how you became interested in, in working uh, in diverse populations in PE? Yeah. So, so to be honest, when I went to do my PhD, Scott, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to do a PhD. I knew that I wanted to be in higher ed, but didn't know what I wanted to do, right? So one time we, I was in the library with one of my colleagues, Nancy Breidentrop, and, and we were talking about it. She sharing with me what she had in mind or do for her dissertation. And she wanted to do a study interview women with multiple sclerosis about the barriers of physical activity. And I talk about it and I told, tell me more about it. And she started explaining to me her research. Oh my goodness. I went running Bell, uh, Bell Street to go to my, my advisor office, Dr. Pfeiffer. Dr. Pfeiffer, I know what I want to do my dissertation on. I want to explore the, the perception of toward physical activity and barriers of Hispanic parents okay, with disabilities. So I interview Hispanic parents of kids with disabilities, not knowing that there were a lot of, there were not a lot of research on that area. And, and in part because there's not a lot of faculty doing research on Hispanic families, particularly in their native language. And that happened the same in the schools. Most kids, there's a lot of Hispanic kids in the school have been educated by white teachers and, and that, that's okay. But by being able to speak Spanish, provide me with the opportunity to connect with, with Hispanic families. And that's how I ended up, that's how I started. When, when I did that first study on my own, that was the first study I did on my own, um, I learned so much because in, at, at TWU, I was involved in a program called uh, Project E. It was a physical activity, nutrition program, uh, nutrition, physical activity, and psychology program for Hispanic families who have children who, who were at risk of being obese. And I was brought to that program just to do the physical activity component, but just because I speak Spanish, you're right, and I have the background on PE and all of that. So, so I, I, I was an assistant in the program. 
or I was not involved in the research component, right? But then when I get it to do on my own, and listen to their experiences that they didn't know what adaptive PE was. They didn't know what to do. That prompted me, oh my goodness, I, keep, I need to keep doing this, right? And, and, and that's how I started doing work with Hispanic family. Well, I wanna hear a little bit more about like that, you know, the importance of, of that language piece, because I don't know Spanish, right? So, and I, well, when I was a teacher, I, I'm from Michigan and uh, outside of the Detroit area, and we live in near the largest Middle Eastern um, demographic outside of the Middle East. So Arabic was the language that was usually a barrier for us. Um, and, you know, I, I would love to hear though a little bit about like the power of, of being able to speak that language and making that connection with parents. Well, I've been able to travel all over the world, right? And, and either Spanish country or English speaking country. And the aspect on Spanish is not only that we have some, share something in common, that is the language, but life experiences, our stories are very similar. And for them to see somebody who is a Latino or Hispanic in, in a leadership role, is eye opening for them, right? Because they think, okay, this is one of us, right? And, and like in Syriac, it's, it's called, my lab, we have about 21 students. Out of those 21, I was about between 15 or 17, where is the Hispanic or student of color? Um, so, it, which is normally doesn't happen. And it's because of that, I was one of them, right? And, and that doesn't mean that all students who are Hispanic gonna come and study with me, but it's a motivation for them. They need more role models, like we're gonna help them to Oh, this is, you did it, I can do it then, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. How do we get more, and this is my, and I'm going down a wormhole, which is what we do on the podcast sometimes. <laughs> but, yeah. how, you know, I've looked around in our field sometimes, and I love our field, and I am a, a, a white guy from, uh, yeah, from a, a city in America. And, but like, I always look around, you know, when we go to Nick, Nick Pete or Isapa or Napapa and stuff, and I see a lot of people that look like me. Um, uh, you know, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, white women as well, but like, how do we get better representation um, of, of people from other cultures um, within our field? You need to create opportunities, Scott. Um, I, I wrote a paper with Dr. Hoshan and Dr. Hegel about something similar to this. And then also we wrote another paper about the representation of Hispanic faculty in academia. And at the time, Scott, I was the only Hispanic faculty teaching physical education at a division one institution um, because it doesn't happen too much. And one time I was having a conversation with Dr. Sam Hodge from Ohio State. You know that everybody, every time people say, oh, the problem is in the pipeline. There's a problem in the pipeline of on, undergraduate students from diverse community. And he said something that opened my eyes a lot. The problem is not in the pipeline. The problem is in the valve. So we keep putting more requirements and make it more difficult for them to go on through the pipeline, right? When they are the pipeline, you find a mentor, they will make it. But then you cannot treat student of color like every other student. That's not equal, that's not inclusion, right? That's because we have cultural differences. We, I remember at TWE even I struggled sometimes because I didn't understand some of the jokes or, or we are, in Puerto Rico, we are very affectionate, right? We are hugging and kissing people 
well, with respect, right? <laughs> but um, but um, well, that's who who we are. But then in the U.S., that doesn't happen too much, you know. And, and but luckily, my advisors they were very open and very visionaries on those. Dr. Carlos Hurek and Dr. Jim Pfeiffer, they, they were ahead on on that part, you know. And and they, I I was able to study because of of a teacher preparation grant. Otherwise, I didn't know if I would be able to make it. And I, I've seen that in our field, not just in higher ed, but also um, practitioners. It, you know, it's, it seems like that there, we, we have a big gap. And I think that representation piece for our younger students is so big uh, to motivate them, to let them know uh, what is possible. Um, you know, something you also mentioned was mentoring. Um, I looked at some mentoring literature a while ago, and it seems like that's one of the biggest, it, from what I read, looks like one of the biggest barriers is that, you know, people like to mentor people that they connect with a lot, you know, and usually that means the person that's from their own culture. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems like such a, you know, finding that mentor who's going to work with you and, and, and be that role model, you know, because you need that to really, I think, be successful in any world, any area. Well, you tell you, if you ask me, I would like to have a lab that would be like the equivalent of the United Nations, right? Right now I have a student from Colombia, India, another student from, from, the, from Kansas. So, so I work on like in Syracuse, I have students from everywhere, China, and, and you just need to be open for how you are changing the life of these students and how you want to change our future, you know, of the profession. So, Absolutely. I want to go back to your research and talking about working with these families. So, so were there interesting findings or differences um, that you found that from working with these Hispanic children and, and families that maybe their barriers and such compared to uh, other families, uh, yeah. were there differences in there? Well, I can tell you this: like all families, this regarding the the ethnicity or the or the race, all of them value physical activity. They think that are important, but the benefits are different. The white families believe of the physical benefit of physical activity, whereas Hispanic, they focus more on the psychological benefit, on connecting with family, sharing family values, and all of that. In terms of the barriers, they share similar barriers, but then there are their difference, right? So finances, um, lack of time, lack of resources, that, those are very common. What among Hispanic is the language barrier, the financial barrier, um, the fact that they had to work two or three jobs. And this is more important is the lack of knowledge about their rights or what they can do or what they can do. And that's why some of the programming that we do, we either deliver in Spanish or have the document in Spanish and all of that. And, and when we go to other countries like Colombia, Guatemala, we deliver all the information in Spanish. Can you talk a little bit about um, how PE teachers can become more culturally responsive and why that might be important? If they can, they need to travel, Scott. They need to travel. That's why I create a lot of study abroad courses as much as I can, because students need to know that there's more than the US. Like, I have done courses to Costa Rica, like do adventure activities. Then, a couple of years ago, I, I took 21 students to Cuba. Um, and that was eye-opening to them. So that's, that's the first step, because remember, it's good. I was in second grade, the first time that I traveled to the US. And I went to, and I thought that Puerto Rico was the best place in the world. I didn't want to leave Puerto Rico because that's all that I knew. In second grade, when I went to the U.S., in fact, I went to Disney World. 
I said, oh my goodness, I loved it. This is what I want. And that look at me, several years later, I, I ended up in the US. The same happened with the teachers. If they know only what it is in, in, in the US, they would not know what happened. One of the reasons why I like to do, go other countries and do research is because if we know what they do in their countries, when these families come to the US, we will be able to create programs that meet their needs and they are cultural relevant. So we need to be open-minded like, yes, the US is a great nation, but there are other countries that are doing amazing stuff as well. So, and sometimes we don't value that. Absolutely. I know we did talk briefly too about that before. And you know, I, I think that's a really great thing if people can travel and such. I just think that most PE teachers, you know, I think that there's a financial barrier for a lot of people or even just the perception, um, you know, or, or time of, you know, you have family, all those things. Um, but, but now with the internet, Scott, you can travel the world from your computer, you know? I have uh, listeners uh, to this show from Russia, Australia, Korea, and Finland that have in France. So yes, absolutely. Well, I, I haven't got, I haven't gone to those places yet. So, <laughs> so it's on my to-do list to go to all of those. I, I want to hear what would be so if an APE or PE teacher came to you and they had a Hispanic student in a PE setting and they and they said that they want to reach that student better. What what type of um what type of advice would you give that uh, teacher? So the first, uh, uh, what I would ask them is how long that kid has been in the U.S., you know? Is it just a recent immigrant or been here forever? When I was in college, I had this student, they were doing like the practicum experience, and they were coming, came to me like frustrated, but to see, I have this kid like, they don't want to participate, they, they, both of them go in the corner and this and that, and I asked them, do they have a disability? No, they don't have a disability. And I kept asking them questions, and one of the questions was, what language do they speak? I don't know. So when they go back the following day, so you see they speak Spanish, perfect. So I wrote a couple of words and phrases for them to share with the student. Then when they went back to school, they were able to share those activities with the kid. It's called kids are kids. Kids are kids. Kids like somebody who is funny, who is engaging, who is loving, who is going to take care of them. So that's the best recipe that you can give to somebody. Kids, no matter what, I went to Egypt a couple of years ago and I had a blast working with kids and I did a kind of thought of class without using a single word. Just using gesture, like come here, go over there. And they did it. So, so if you had the desire, you will make it happen. All right, I'm gonna go back now to parents. Um, and, and you've talked, oh, we've already kind of talked a little bit about your experiences and such, working with parents and such. Um, and, and same question I just asked you about his working with Hispanic students. Um, how would you advise APE teachers to work with uh, and communicate best with parents? Good. And that's in general. Yeah, so like a couple, several years ago, we wrote a paper about on, on Yopper about how to communicate with Hispanic families, okay, with without disabilities. The first piece of advice is is you schools have ELL teachers, used to be ESL teachers, connect with them. Because what happened, this is Scott, is now with, with the political environment, if I go to the schools and I told the parent, I saw, is Jose Ramirez is at home, they might think that it's, it's, it's the government or, or we don't know their, 
their legal start their uh, um, their legal status, right? Mm-hmm. So they might be apprehensive. So, so you need to find somebody who is an insider and have a connection of the school because the parents want to connect, but if they don't speak the language, they don't speak English. You need to find somebody who connect. Like, we are recruiting for families. We have a lot of Hispanic families. So I, I, I assume that they are Hispanic because of the last name. So I first, I, I contact them and I try to, to talk to them in English. And then I ask them, do you speak Spanish? And, and then we ended up talking about everything else about the research study because they want that connection, right? But, but use the ELL teacher. You know, sometimes use, use the kid. The kid might be a good connection. But you need to be aware telling them what the purpose of the meeting is. Absolutely. Um, you know, once again, from my experience, my experience was not, uh, I didn't work with a lot of Hispanic students, but I did work with a lot of students that were Arabic. And, um, and, and a lot of them were coming from countries where in act, some of their disabilities were because of um, the uh, conflicts over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I, I had incidents where, uh, you know, I think parents were not trying to talk to me because they were afraid that talking to me being, you know, in the special ed process, that this was going to come up and, you know, whatever, you know, there was going to be something, a backlash with mm-hmm. um, all the politics that, that you brought up. Um, I have a funny story about that. I don't know if I wish I want this to be public or not, but so I was in Texas, right? I was an AP, AP teacher, right? Mm-hmm. This, this family, they were Hispanic and there was no translator. They asked me if I could translate. So the student was my, on my caseload. Long story short, they want to reduce services for the kid from two times a week to one time a month. I said, listen, and I translate that to the mom. I said, listen, they want to reduce your services, but no, you're going to tell them now that you instead of two weeks, times per week, you want it three times per week. And I told them that, listen, the mom said that she's not okay with that. She would like to have it um, three times a, a, a week. And then every time that they say something, I kept telling them about it. And I would tell them, you're going to say this and that. So at the end, I told them, listen, this mother is very knowledgeable, right? So, so she knows what, what she needs for her kids. And, and the point here is this. A couple of things. I did that because what the right thing to do. And the second thing would be, I would be, we need to provide opportunity for these families to be successful. I don't know what it's to have a child with a disability squad. I don't. But by listening to them, it's hard. Having a child, typical child is hard. Imagine a child with a disability. It must be harder. So, so we need to find a way how these families, we provide for them, you know? Absolutely. There's an important part of the law, I think, that gets overlooked a lot with IDEA. And that, that part's child find. And part of child find is that we're supposed to, to disseminate knowledge to parents um you know and, and in multiple means and i i don't know if we do a good job my, my story with the arabic students is so we had an esl teacher right and um i i you know i knew we had an esl teacher and i had whatever uh quite a few students that were arabic with with significant disabilities but you know our had language abilities and when i met the esl language person she didn't even speak arabic and <laughs> so I was confused at like, I don't think anybody was really translating to them. The only time I ever saw a, tr- a real translator for them was at IEP meeting. And that, that's a problem. Like, let's go like, like I can connect with Hispanic family because I speak 
it's fine, right? But well, like for example, we want to take our program to India, right? Mm -hmm. So now I would be able to do that. One of my students, she's from India, she speaks 12 different languages. So, so you need to find somebody who speaks the language that can connect to you, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, we used to do the Google uh, Translate and the kids used to laugh because they thought it always came out so funky. <laughs> but that was, it, it was a struggle. It was a huge struggle. Yep. Well, thank you for your advice on that. I want to uh, move on now to your to your uh, your creation of Fit Family Program. Um, you know, I, it's I've heard about it for quite a bit, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the Fit Family Program you have developed? Okay, a couple of things. Like in 2008, I think what we went to to do a sport camp, Okinawa Visual Impairment in Guatemala, and when we were there, we were working with about 20 kids, I think. But we didn't have enough volunteers, right? So, so then we we decided to recruit the parents and the siblings that were there, and we taught them all the games that we're gonna do and all of that stuff, right? But then at the end, I I decided to do stories, right? So we did interviews with the parents over there in Guatemala. It was a team of us, and and, and one of the parents says to me, you know what? I have read a lot about physical activity, but it's not the same reading it versus doing it. Mm -hmm, that's a good point. Right, so I leave it in there. Then every year, what is called, used to be AFER and now shape, Sam Hosh and I always met. He said, Sam, in one of the, those conversations, he said, Sam, I have a question for you. I'm running out of ideas what to ask the parents because I'm doing a lot of qualitative studies, but then I'm getting the same information over and over. And then he's, this is what he said that, uh, what, I, I wish I, he didn't say that. Then your next step, you need to do an intervention. <laughs> so I was afraid of that. Because an intervention is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but it's very rewarding. Like, like from there, then I, one time there was a call for proposal to do a, pro, a program for children with visual impairment. Then that's where the first fit family went up. We did a lot of mistakes, um, but we learned a lot. Like, for example, the program used to be from eight to two, and, and, and then we did four workshops, and, and that was a lot. And my students told me, so to see, we are exhausted, this is too much. And I talked to the parents, they tell us the same, and we keep reducing it. And the more that we have done the program, it was getting better every time. And, and that's how Fit Family started, by by listening to the families telling us what they need. Because they told we love physical activity. It is important, but we don't know how to do it. So now we are teaching them how to do it. What is the purpose? Like, what is like, what do you want the families to walk away from after they're done with the program? So, so our ultimate goal is to not only to enhance quality of life, but to enhance, enhance health. However, we are not mentioning health directly because my belief is that if we teach the kids with disabilities tend to be behind in, in, in motor skills. I believe that, that if you're gonna be physically active, you need to have the basic motor skills to engage in physical activity, in different forms of physical activity or team sports. So right now at this stage in my career, I wanna focus on fundamental skills that hopefully will translate in being more physically active. Then eventually I wanna keep working with those children, then okay, now you are almost an adult, 
let's do the other form of physical activities, aerobic activities and stuff like that, that would help you to prevent obesity and all of that. But, but we need to start somewhere, right? So that's why I want to work with kids first. And then like, for in, but in our lab, Scott, like we have other students want to do dance interventions. So I think they were on your podcast. So, yes. So, so we want to do intervention for, for people with disabilities. So. And just to hit that dance piece real quick, I, I really like talking to them because it seems we have this field of adapted PE. We know we're marginalized and such, but we've been around for a while. And I think that a lot of us are quite productive. Even though we're a small field, I feel like we're a pretty strong field. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising to me that I don't know if I've ever seen anything of quality on dance in our field. Because again, we do what we are good at it. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, that's shocking. Mm-hmm. It's such a major component of physical education. And that's why, I'm, that's why we are doing motor skills. Because if you are doing good at motor skills, more likely you're going to be involved in sport or other form of physical activity. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, so what is, okay, so tell me a little bit about like, what does this program look like? Okay, I'm going to talk to you about the autism program because that's the one that we are doing now. So basically, we developed four workshops. Sensor integration, communication, physical activity and sport, and aquatics. So what the program looks like is parents come with their children to our facility. Then we divide them. The kids go to do physical activity with my students who are either um, physical educators, occupational therapists, kinesiology students in general. While they are doing those activities, the parents are attending one of the workshops that I told you. We teach them how to engage their kids, how to do the activities. Then the second part, the parents get to practice with their kids what we taught them. Then as part of the program, we give them physical activity equipment and a booklet that matches the equipment that they receive so they can go ahead and do the activities and they get to keep that equipment for free. So each family gets between $250 to $400 worth of equipment for them to play. And then, because we have done this a lot, the parents have told us, we ask them at the end of the program, what do you need? What, how we can make the program better? So we have been refining, like for example, with this edition, Parents going to receive every week, every week between two to three text messages, like motivational messages. Hey, keep it up. Do you try this game or, or send us extra wide information? And then also, they have told us that they would like to have a Facebook page. So we created a closed Facebook page that the families can ask questions to us or ask questions to other families. Hey, we are struggling with this game. Then they can post a video of the kid doing the activity and then we can give them feedback. But also that serves as a, as a networking, you know, for them to connect. Like one of the last programs that I run at Syracuse, Scott, um, one mother came to us crying and said, what happened? Why are you crying? The point that what she was crying is because her son who was 10 years old for the very first time was invited to a birthday party. And that to me was priceless, like MasterCard, right? So um, that, made my day, right? I wish she wouldn't cry, but she was very emotional about it. But, but we have three groups in, this, in this, this new edition. We have that group that I just explained. Then we have a home group. They're gonna get the equipment, they're gonna get the books, they're gonna get the text messages, but they're gonna do everything at home. They're not gonna get the lecture or anything like that. The rationale for that is because there's no way we can serve all families or kids with disabilities. 
and I want to know if by doing the activities at home, it could improve the motor skills. And like I tell the parents, listen, I can give you all the equipment of the world and I can give you the equipment, but if you don't practice with your child, he or she is not going to improve. And then the last group is a waitlist control group. We are doing data collection starting next week, then again in May, then three months later in September. When we did data, data collection, the waitlist control group will do the same activities at the home group. The equipment, the text messages and all of that, and then we'll go from there. Wow, that sounds like a, A, it sounds like a very, very good um, program, but it sounds like with a waitlist control group, you got a nice study on your hands too. And again, we learn, we have made mistakes, Scott, and we have learned and we ask people and we listen and we try to make it better. The amount of equipment you're giving out is a really, um, that's really powerful. Um, I, you know, I, I think that's definitely a motivator to keep coming. Do they get it if they don't complete the program? They have to come to the workshop. They have to come to the workshop so they can get the equipment. We don't awesome. pay them to come. Um, in the future, I'm, uh, I'm going to be including transportation and stuff like that because we have, depending on the group that I'm going to be working with, but um, yeah, the, one of the, the programs and the one of the parents have to come. And, and so I know that you've been running this and how long have you been running this now? Seven years, eight years. You said three years? Seven or eight. Oh, seven or eight, sorry. Um, and, and I know you've been conducting research overall on this. What are some of the main findings you have found from researching families over the, those years? Most of our publications have been on the visual impairment, right? Because we collect so much data that it takes time to organize and analyze it and all of that stuff. A mixed method, qualitative and quantitative. From the visual impairment, for example, the previous study we did was they value physical activity, they see it's important, they don't know how to do it. After the program, they, they have told us that the program has been an eye-opening experience for them. You see the wording like, a program for kids with visual impairment, and it was an eye-opening experience for them is because one of the workshops that we did for the visual impairment was on orientation and mobility. And this expert that I brought, they created like on occluders, like, like a glasses, like resemble almost the same level of vision that the child, ha the, the child has. And the parents, when they put it on, some parents started crying, Scott because they either said, oh my goodness, I was pushing my child too, too hard. And the other one said, my goodness, I was holding him back or holding her back. So, so that's one of the things. On the autism program, we are um, we're in the process of analyzing that data, but we did a couple of good studies where one of them was we measured blood pressure on the kids with a colleague at, at Syracuse, Dr. Kevin Heffernan. And what we found is, we know that adults with autism tend to have high blood pressure, but there was not a lot of paper on kids. So what we found is that you have a child who is six years old, for example, their arteries were equivalent of somebody who was 16. So mm -hmm. we don't know if that because of the autism, because of the medication they were taking, but they are already they were already prone to high blood pressure. So what that, happened, that, the problem that's was crazy. Yeah, the problem that measuring blood pressure in kids with autism is very difficult because they you need to stand still to those, those measures and they didn't. So, because it's not a traditional blood pressure machine when you go to a doctor, right? So fancy. Absolutely, absolutely. But if those findings are, I mean, that's, um, that's really problematic. 
Yeah, and that's why we are doing this. Like, like I said, like, 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 yeah, it's, it's awesome, I think. Absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, it's, there's not opportunities out there for, for people in most areas. I mean, when I lived in the Denton, Dallas area, I felt like that was the most I ever saw, and there still wasn't that much. Um, you know, where I'm at now, I don't think anyone, it's not a secret that there's almost nothing for people to do. Uh, that have a disability or have a child with a disability. Your options are so limited. Um, and again, again, Scott, I think in our field, um, we're doing a great job preparing our students to work with the kids, but we are not doing such a good job teaching them how to, to work with the parents. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I, my last question for you uh, is about fit families and where do you see it going in the next few years? Well, okay. That's a big question. But uh, for example, we are doing this pilot data. Like I said, I've been here only a year in Madison. And the fact that we were able to recruit about 50 families and we are able to deliver it in, in a, within a year. That's, I'm very proud of that and the work that we have done. I could not do that with my student. I have three amazing doctoral students who I know when they graduate, they will be able to go ahead and run the program on their own. So I'm excited about that. Or a similar program, right? Because the principle is gonna be the same. They can do whatever intervention they wanna do. So the next step would be to replicate the program in three cities here in Wisconsin. Then after that, our goal is to replicate the program here, Syracuse, Texas, and Puerto Rico, or with Hispanic families. We're gonna translate everything that we have into Spanish to do that. And then maybe between there, we may go, we're gonna to go to India to deliver the program over there. We were planning on doing it that last year, but then I moved here so to Madison, so we had to stop that. But overall, what I wanna do is how we can demonstrate that the program works, and that's what, we, that's what we're doing all the research, demonstrate that the program works, keep refining it until we know, you know what, this program works. Let's, Let's make it available to everybody, you know, so. so Absolutely. Will, Absolutely. But the key here is one component that we have, we are a, a team of about 12 faculty or professional. We have speech therapy, um, special educators, um, occupational therapists, APE, physical education, kinesiology. We have parents. We have a multidisciplinary team and everybody does something different. So. That collaboration is key. Yeah, that's key because I run the program. I, I, I'm providing the opportunity, but everybody ha look at it from a different lens. Absolutely. And it and, keeps growing your program. And yeah, and by providing, bringing other experts, Scott, we learn new strategies about to do research. And right, right now we have all our service and everything electronically because somebody recommended and we are measuring gait right now. And so we never done that. So. So the fact that, that one of the things I like here in Madison is that, that we have occupational therapy within our kinesiology department. So I get a chance to, to collaborate from them, teach them what physical education or adaptive physical education is. And they get, their student gonna get to know that, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, that would, I would assume be key, um, you know, because where do they learn about those, those things? Because most schools aren't introducing people Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I'm trying to do with the podcast, honestly, is not just for our field, but also that there's something available for people to learn outside of our field. 
Um, I, I don't think we do a great job of promoting our field. So having a program that you're able to do that, I think is great. So like, like here in Manitoba, we are connecting with different organizations. And again, when, again, in Syracuse, Scott, when I run a program, within the first two hours, I could get between 75 to 90 applicants because the community knew me, they knew what I do and all of that. Here, it's different, right? So I'm new, and the fact that I'm new and I have received over 50 applicants is impressive. I think after we run the program one time, people gonna explode. We have families driving from Green Bay. I don't know where Green Bay is yet, but it's about three hours, I think, it's far. So, so, so I think the fact that they are driving this that far to come here tells a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, as I said before, you know, um, I, I would like to see this this program that you have in many more places. I don't, as you said, I don't think we do a great job of reaching parents and families, um, you know, and, and also the entire family, you know, parents, siblings, grandparents. Yeah, and, and the key here is, Scott, like the one that, I, the reason why I want to standardize the program here is because of that. One, one complaint that we get when we submit papers to journal is small sample size, right? So let's say that I collect data here and then I collect data in Iowa and see that other places we can then put it all together and we'll have a larger sample size. Absolutely, absolutely. But well, Luis, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to come on and talk to us. No, my um, pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I'm sorry it took us so long to get together. So. No, it is totally okay. But thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.